0: Philippians chapter 2, and this morning we're looking at verses 1 through verse 11. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking in the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. The Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You for your word, the gift that it is to us, and our only infallible rule for faith and life. And we pray that as we come to this particular passage this morning, that you would, by the power of your spirit, give us understanding and insight to see the truth that is here. And that your spirit would truly apply it to each of our hearts. That we might all draw closer to you. That we all might be conformed closer to the image of of our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray now for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. When our study of the the book of Philippians, we've been considering the, uh, the broad theme of what does it mean to live as saints or to live as sincere believers here in the 21st century. And of course, so far we've seen the importance of abounding in love for one another. The need to pray faithfully for one another. And uh, of course, that we must encourage and build up one another. And that we must be content in the joy of the Lord. Even in the midst of the most challenging and difficult of times. By living this way... We not only glorify our great God and Savior, but we also bear witness to the world around us of the transforming power of the gospel. In our passage this morning, Paul continues to lay out for the Philippians and us how we must live. And this time, stressing the unity of the body of Christ and the attitude of humility which cultivates that unity. Now from Paul's reckoning, it's critical that the people of God demonstrate these attributes because they're the very things that Christ Himself desired of us and of which Jesus Himself gave us the greatest example. And though the world would seek glory on a very different path, we're challenged here to see that by striving for unity and living with all humility among our brothers and sisters in Christ, that this is the path. Which Jesus shows to us as the only way to everlasting glory and honor. And so Paul begins here in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... So Paul begins with this this series of if if statements. And he does this not in a a doubtful manner, as if he's questioning whether uh, such things exist, or whether the Philippians uh, have experienced them. Well, no. Paul knows that they exist. And he knows that as true believers in Christ, the Philippians have enjoyed these blessings and these benefits. There is consolation or encouragement to be found in Christ. This was the confidence that Paul expressed back in chapter 1 verse 6 when he says being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ, the Comforter, Jesus promised to send to his disciples after his death. The Spirit has come into their lives and has started a good work, bringing them to new life. And He will surely bring them and um, bring that uh, work to perfection and to completion. And that certainly is a great comfort that we have. And certainly, love it does provide comfort. Whether it's the love of God in Christ toward uh, toward them that covers a multitude of sins, or the love that the the Apostle Paul has so unashamedly demonstrated to them, or the love that he desires they would have for one another, there is great comfort and easing of grief to be found in love, especially when they're facing various trials. For them to know the love of God, to know uh, the love of the Apostle Paul toward them, and of course the love of the brothers and sisters in Christ, that all this love is abounding toward you. Well, that would certainly be a great comfort. And that's certainly what they have been experiencing. Thirdly, there is a deep fellowship in the Holy Spirit. They're called together by one Spirit of God to be saints or holy ones, united together in a common faith. And Paul has, again, repeatedly reminded them how this fellowship reveals itself, that they uh, participate together with him in the gospel. They together are partakers of God's grace even as Paul has charged them before back in chapter 1 verse 27 when he said stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In other words he's saying stand firm as as one person as one body of Christ. And so that is true spirit driven fellowship that they enjoy. And as Paul has made so abundantly clear They've experienced much affection and mercy. Again, he's testified to them about God's great affection and mercy toward them. He's also made clear his own affection and mercy toward them. And so there can be no doubt about any of these things. They're all very real blessings that the Philippian believers have experienced and enjoyed. So that's not in question. So why then does Paul use these if statements? Well, he uses the if statements to show a condition that would demand a certain response. In other words, if you have these things, if you've experienced them, if you've tasted of them, if you've enjoyed the benefits of them, and again, you most certainly have if you're a true, sincere believer in the Lord Jesus Christ well, then you must respond to these great blessings by demonstrating unity. And this is what Paul says in verse 2. Then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So he's saying, if, 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 but then, if these, then this. If love and consolation and, and fellowship And affection and mercy will then fulfill my joy with this unity. The blessings of being comforted by Christ, by being consoled by love, and by enjoying the fellowship brought on through the work of the Holy Spirit, being both the object and and the purveyors of affection and mercy, this blessed condition means that you then must respond by striving for greater unity, In the body of Christ. Paul describes this unity as being united in in disposition, uh, belief, attitude and purpose. Being united in what you think and in what you do. Being united together in doctrine and truth as well as in love and mercy. Being united together and, and driven by the same purpose in life which is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The striving toward unity, though, isn't only what Paul desires. But as we said, it, it's demanded. It's demanded of the blessed condition that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. That is, unity isn't optional. It's not something that we can uphold as a, as a nice platitude that we that we never strive to attain. It's like, well, that looks very nice up there, unity. No, it's demanded. It's demanded of us because it's what Jesus has called us to do. In fact, unity, the unity of His people, was heavy on the heart of our Savior on the last night of His life. And we find this theme was one of the key themes of His high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus prays, I do not pray for these alone. He had already prayed for the disciples but also for those who believe in me through their word. So he's praying for for us, for those who would believe in the word. That they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. many times do we see the word one there? Jesus wants the disciples, he wants us to be one. So that, they, so that we reflect not only the unity that Jesus has with, with God the Father, but that all, through that unity, through the unity which we display to the world, we might bring glory To the name of our great God and Savior. Now we should note that Jesus isn't praying for here. Nor is Paul advocating for unity at all costs. This is the mistake that many uh, ecumenical movements make. When they seek to unite not only uh, different groups of Christians. But even from those of other faiths. They proclaim unity. But they disregard the only foundation or the basis that we can have for unity. Paul says here to be of one mind. That is, what you think and believe. In other words, truth and doctrine can't and they shouldn't be easily cast aside in the pursuit of unity. A Christian can't be of one mind Or seek the same purpose with someone who denies the divinity of Christ or who rejects the Bible as God's word. No, the foundation of unity must be on Christ Himself and the truth of the gospel that He proclaims. The prophet says in Amos, Two cannot walk as one unless they are agreed. We must agree on the gospel If we're going to walk in unity together. And again, even among different Christian denominations, there may be a a certain limit to unity. We should strive for it. But again, we mustn't sacrifice the truth of the gospel just to stand under a common banner. The best place to begin working toward this unity then is first just among ourselves. Right? Within, Within our own congregation. We must focus on the unity of, of this particular body of believers so that we truly are one body in Christ Jesus. But then once we get good at that, well then after that we can seek greater unity with those with whom we have substantial agreement and doctrine. We can establish unity in those places. Only then can we begin to kind of gradually stretch out further. But the point here that Paul is making and that we must keep in mind is very clear. If we've been blessed by Jesus and the gospel, and certainly we have, then we must strive for unity. Again, it's, it's not an option. We must strive for unity within ourselves and within the broader church as well. But if we're going to seek out such unity, well then we have a few challenges and obstacles that we need to get rid of. We must cast off all pride, selfish ambition, and vain conceit. This is the implication of what Paul now charges in verses 3 and 4. He says, "...let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself." Let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. Pride and selfishness are the two greatest stumbling blocks to seeking unity. Any kind of unity. And our natural uh, sinful inclination, of course, is to is to exalt ourselves and to promote ourselves even to the exclusion of others. And in these verses, Paul challenges us, don't be this way. Again, if you've been blessed in Christ Jesus, and you certainly have, then you must be united together. But in order to be truly united together, pride and selfishness must be put to death in you and in your lives. There are two ways that Paul sets forth this challenge of humility. First, instead of operating from this sin nature of of selfishness and and empty conceit or vanity, we should seek to exalt others before ourselves with lowliness of mind. In other words, instead of trumpeting yourselves or, or drawing attention to yourself so that others will give you praise, well, you seek to trumpet others and what they do. right? Give praise to others, privately and even publicly for how they're faithfully using their gifts to the glory of God. We all like to be praised and encouraged. But it never really sounds very good when we are the ones doing it ourselves. And so be proactive. Don't praise yourself. Don't exalt yourself, but be proactive and give recognition and praise to others around you instead of yourself. And in order to do this, you've got to be alert to what others are doing. You've got to be paying attention so that you might be able to give encouragement to others. Now having an attitude of lowliness of mind means... We show restraint toward others and and yet seek to be most generous toward others. We we seek restraint to ourselves and we seek to be generous toward others. The commentator of the 17th, 18th century, Matthew Henry, describes this, uh, this humble attitude by saying, "...we must be severe upon our own faults and charitable in our judgments of others." Be quick in observing our own de- defects and infirmities, but ready to overlook and make favorable allowances for the defects of others. We must esteem the good which, in, which is in others above that which is in ourselves. Right? It's too often we don't do that. Right? We're always focused on the faults and the infirmities and the imperfections in others. We're encouraged here to know, not not don't do that. Be gracious toward others, be long suffering toward others, be encouraging toward others. But we ought to be a little bit more severe on ourselves, being mindful of our own sin, our own faults, and our own shortcomings. Of course, remember this is exactly what the preachers in Rome were not doing as Paul was addressing back in, in chapter 1. Remember, they were preaching Christ in order to promote themselves at Paul's expense. And so Paul is saying, look, don't, again, don't be that way. Such attitudes and behaviors aren't in harmony with gospel citizenship. The humility we're after is exactly what we see in the life of John the Baptist. When Jesus arrived to be baptized by John, John knew that his own ministry was now coming to a close, but that the ministry of Jesus was just beginning. And so, remember what John confessed. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. We're to humble ourselves by exalting others and regarding them as greater than ourselves. And friends, this is no easy task. But it's what we've been called to do. By the grace of God and the Spirit of God working in us. As we submit ourselves to the will of God, we can accomplish it. So that true unity might be achieved in our own midst. Well, this then leads to the second way in which were to demonstrate this humility, and that's by seeking to serve and, and minister to others. Paul says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now it's natural that we're going to look out for our own needs, right? God has has given us a life and also has given us an, an innate sense to to seek survival. But what Paul intends here So we also need to be mindful and we need to be on the alert for the needs of others, even seeking to fulfill their needs before we fulfill our own needs. Well, nothing could be more contrary to the emphasis of our culture today, which is all about putting yourself first and looking out for number one and fulfilling your own needs, even if it's at the expense of others. This is often the reason... Why so many marriages fail, and the divorce rate is so high, even among Christians, that instead of, instead of seeking to be a blessing to one another, s- serving one another and putting the needs of, of, uh, of a, the, their spouse before their own, each spouse then just focuses on the fulfillment of their own needs. And they serve themselves in order in pursuit of, of a blessing. Right? It's all about what What do I get in this relationship. But God's design for marriage is that if both the husband and the wife would seek to meet the needs of the other first before their own, well then they won't have to worry about seeking the fulfillment of their own needs. See, because if they're both committed to doing that, to, to serving the other first well then their spouse would have already fulfilled them and they don't need to look to fulfill their needs. So this is what humility looks like in marriage and it's what leads to the true one flesh unity is a husband and a wife seeking to serve one another first before themselves. <laughs> but in the same way, the apostle is stressing to the Philippians that they should be seeking to serve one another within the church. So that, with the the result being that when everyone in the church is looking out for the needs of others and seeking to, to serve others before themselves, well, then everyone's needs get met. Right? If everyone is committed to the principle, I'm going to serve others before myself, well, then your needs will be met. You won't have to worry about it. And, of course, then that will lead to greater unity within the body. And we would build one another up. Because we're looking out and being mindful of the needs of others. Now, again, uh, uh, one of the problems is often we don't want to get involved, right? We don't want to deal with somebody else's mess. But no, if you see a brother or a sister in need, you need, to, you need to help and serve them as you can. That's what we're called to do. And again, if everybody's doing that, well, then there will be no complaints about, well, I didn't get served, I didn't get my needs met this is how we're then to humble ourselves. And our attitudes regarding one another as as more important than ourselves and in our actions by serving one another instead of serving ourselves. If we enjoy the blessings of being in Christ, well then we must be unified. And if we're going to be unified, we must be humble toward one another. This is how we're called to live. Paul isn't done yet. To take this challenge down from the lofty shelf of, of the platitudes, high up on the shelf, Paul goes on to illustrate exactly what he means by pointing them and us to the example of Jesus Christ. Verse 5: Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Literally, have the mind in yourselves that was in Christ. Strive to be like Christ in this way. When it comes to unity and humility, in attitude and deed, look to Jesus and follow his perfect example. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul recounts how Christ showed forth this unity and humility in his life. In fact, the very story of the gospel. Right the good news about Jesus from the very beginning even to the very end is a demonstration of unity and humility First let's consider the unity Christ displayed this unity is between Jesus Christ the eternal son of God God the Father and God the Holy Spirit the the triunity of the Trinity one God and three persons. And we see this unity in verse 6. Who, who, that is, Jesus the Son, who being in the form of God. hey, Jesus existed in the form of God because He was God. This verse speaks of the pre-incarnate Son of God. That is, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He was God the Son in heaven. The phrase, form of God... Refers to his essential being. That is, God the Son was always and continues to be God by nature. This is what we find in in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because he was the divine, only begotten Son of God. Even before the incarnation, Jesus has perfect unity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he, he did not think it robbery to be considered equal to God. Right? He didn't think it was robbery, like he was stealing something that didn't belong to him, because he was in fact God. This is why Jesus was so able to boldly declare in John 10, I and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father truly were and continue to be one. One but before and even after the Incarnation. Now this is most significant. Not only was Jesus the Son united to God the Father essentially, that is, they were both God by nature, but again, even after Jesus took on a human nature, He remained one with God the Father. And we see this especially in the obedience of Jesus mentioned here in verse 8. That Jesus, as a man, was perfectly obedient to the will, the purpose, and the plan of God. That is, He was fully united with God. Not only essentially in His being, but also united with God in purpose and intent. Jesus sought and desired that which God Himself sought and desired. And we see this in Jesus' uh, priestly prayer. Again, John 17, 4, I glorified you... On the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the plan and the purpose that God had given him. And ultimately that plan was to bring glory to the name of God most high through securing the salvation of his people. But There's another way in which Jesus demonstrates unity. He has this unity within the Godhead. But Jesus also has unity with us. Jesus, the Son of God, united together with us when, in verse 7, He came in the likeness of men. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did this so that He might be able to identify with us in our humanity. Again, so the incarnation is what enabled Jesus to be the one perfect mediator between God and man. Because there was a perfect unity between his divine nature and his human nature. Two distinct natures in one united whole person. So that we might be reconciled to God. And so this then becomes the very basis of our unity. Our unity with Christ and God through Christ. And our unity with one another in Christ. Is because of who Jesus was. Truly God and truly man. <coughs> but as we've seen, unity doesn't come about unless there's humility. And as Paul shows here, Jesus gave us a perfect example of humility. That Jesus, as God the Son, was in the glory of, uh, of heaven before the incarnation. Right? He, he there was uh, before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, the Son of God was with the Father in, in the glory of heaven, and He enjoyed fully and completely the glory of the Father and the Spirit. Well, this too Jesus acknowledged in that high priestly prayer, John seventeen five. He says, "Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was." I said, so Jesus is praying this. He's like, now I want to be glorified again with the same glory that I had with you before. Even before the world was. Before I became incarnate in the flesh. And took on the name Jesus. I, the Son of God. Had that glory with the Heavenly Father. Jesus as the pre-incarnate Son of God, shared in the glory of the Father Again, even before the creation of the world. But the humility of Christ is shown. And that He voluntarily then... right Here He's in this this position of of great glory and everlasting glory and, and honor. But then voluntarily, for a time, the Son laid aside that glory. This glory that was rightfully His as God the Son, He laid aside when He became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is the meaning of uh, that He made Himself of no reputation in verse 7. It doesn't mean that, that the Son got rid of His divinity, no. He remained God. But the One through whom and by whom all things were created humbled Himself and was found, verse 8, found in appearance as a man. So that the Creator made Himself like the creature. Right? And even as we just read earlier in John 17 that, that Jesus had that glory, but now he's, He doesn't have it as the incarnate Son. He's laid it aside temporarily, but now He's looking forward to receiving it again. Now this is truly astounding. That the Son of God would so humble Himself for us... By becoming like us. The extent of this humiliation, Paul demonstrates here, when he notes in verse 7 that Jesus took the form of a bondservant. That is a slave. One who, who serves others. Now when we remember the incarnation, we often have in mind the birth of a king. And that's good and right. Jesus was and still is a king. But Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't even born in a house. He was born in a stable and in, in humble surroundings. He was born in the surroundings of a bondservant. But this was just the beginning. In Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul says that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. This is another layer of His humility at His birth. We see that that here as well in in, uh, Philippians 2, that as a servant in the likeness of men, Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient. That He was obedient to the law. And so again, to back up for a moment, here we have the supreme lawgiver, the eternal God, the Son of God, submitted Himself (coughs) to the very law that He gave. And He obeyed it fully and completely and fulfilled it perfectly. And this He did, as Paul continues here, even to the point of death. Yes, even the painful and shameful death of the cross. Christ was obedient to the Father. He humbled Himself. And this leads us as to again why Jesus humbled himself in this way. Not only was it in service to God the Father, and to bring glory to his name, that certainly was the chief purpose. Why Jesus, the son of God, humbled himself in this a tremendous way? But no, it was also in service to us, to for you and me. God the Son Left his position of glory and honor in heaven. And voluntarily humiliating himself. Coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then he humbled himself in obedience. Even to the point of suffering and dying on a cross like a criminal. For our sins. So that we. Undeserving sinners that we are. So that we might be reconciled to God through him. Brothers and sisters that's amazing that Christ would do that, the Son of God, for us. Now certainly we could stop there and, and say it's enough. Right? The example of unity and humility that Christ Jesus our Lord gives to us, it's surely a great and wonderful. But this isn't the end. Paul continues. You see, the suffering and humiliation of Jesus... In the whole, the whole gamut of his suffering, from the incarnation, enduring the uh, the miseries and the, the this being involved and tempted and tried in all ways that we are uh, in this life, right? Jesus endured all that through his life and through his ministry, through his being mocked and rejected and, and persecuted, and called names. But then also that that humility and humiliation they received, especially in that last week, culminating in the crucifixion. And what appeared to be at the time the apparent victory of death over Him and the victory of His enemies over Him. Well, this was all part of God's plan, you see. That by uniting Himself with us and taking on human flesh and humbling Himself for us, In service to us and in obedience to God the Father. That Jesus demonstrated to us. That this is the only pathway to true glory and honor. We see this exaltation Christ experienced in verses 9-11. Therefore God... Right, after he's accomplished all these things, as the Son has already accomplished all these things, humiliated, uh, uh, humbled himself and, humili- and experienced the humiliation of death on the cross. Well, therefore, after his death, therefore God also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Because of his faithful obedience. And his humbling himself to serve God and sinners. God rewarded Jesus. By exalting him. And this exaltation began of course with the resurrection on the third day. Which we celebrate every Lord's Day. we remember this is the whole reason why we're here. Because this is the day Christ has risen from the dead. But then the exaltation continued. It continued when Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father where even now He reigns and rules over all creation as King of kings and Lord of lords. All for the blessing and the benefit of the church. But there's still more to come. This exaltation will be most complete on the last great day. When Jesus Christ reveals and returns and reveals Himself And his kingdom to all creation, so that all the angels in heaven, to all humanity and the creatures of the earth, and even to Satan and the demons and those condemned to hell under the earth, that when Christ is revealed on that last great day, all these will give glory and honor and praise to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it gets better. It gets better because also on that last great day, when our Savior and Lord and God and King Jesus Christ is revealed, when He's honored and worshiped by all creation, well, then we too will share in His praise and His glory and His honor. Beloved, if, if we've been united, if you've been united to Him in faith, and if you've humbled yourselves in service to Him and others, then you'll share in His reward. Just as He promised. In Luke 18, He who humbles Himself will be exalted. We'll be exalted as we reign together with Him. Perfectly united with Him and with one another. Striving for unity and humility in Christ now leads to certain glory and exaltation in Christ at that time and so truly beloved of God may the spirit of God graciously enable you to strive to strive for such unity and such humility as you rely upon his grace as as your savior displayed strive for that unity strive to be humble toward one another so that you might truly glorify him not only now in this life but also then And all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the great reminder of all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, and all that He has done for us. But even as we've been challenged, that if we have been blessed in this way, and we truly have, if our faith is truly in Christ, well, then there's a response that is demanded that we must be one body and that we must humble ourselves before others and before You so that we might seek to serve one another, so that we might establish that unity and that that unity would be a great witness to the world around us. And we realize, Lord, that that truly is a tremendous witness that oftentimes the world... Has reason to mock and, and laugh when they see uh, the church uh, bickering within, but when there is great unity and we stand firm in the faith together, and when we truly serve and love and humbly serve one another, there is a great witness, and the, the mouths of the accusers and the mockers are stopped. And there's opportunity for the gospel to then be proclaimed. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us even that kind of opportunity. That those who once mocked would then humble themselves before you and come to you and be united with you and with us in this great work which you have called us to do. So we just praise You and thank You, O Lord, for these things. We pray that You would impress this truth upon our hearts, that You would draw us all closer to Yourself. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.